Yes, but I still can't get my mind around how a God of love could send people to a place like hell. Well, let me read to you what Pastor Ray Steadman said on this issue. He said, Yet I submit to you that there is no contradiction in the Scriptures or in God's character in the matter of wrath and grace. Throughout the Bible, we see that God's love is freely available to men and women everywhere. And at all times, over and over, we see God pleading, pleading with mankind to accept the escape from judgment that he has made available by the sacrifice of his son. Well, isn't that what he cried out through the prophet Ezekiel? He said to Israel, turn, please turn from your sin. Why will you die? I get no pleasure out of the death of the wicked. I don't want to cast you into hell. I get no pleasure out of that. People say, well, God must really enjoy watching people roast. For No. Why would God create a torture chamber like hell unless he's a, a, a vindictive God who enjoys watching people suffer? Man, I had a guy tell me that one time. I said, man, you don't even know what you're talking about. Hell was not even made for man. Hell was made for the devil and his angels. But if man wants to follow the devil and is rebelling against God, he will follow him all the way into the place where the devil is going to spend eternity, which is a lake of fire. But God pleads with people, please be saved. I love you. I sent my son to die for you. If I didn't care about you, would I have done that? Turn from your sins. I get no pleasure out of seeing anyone go to hell. Ray Stedman goes on, do not allow yourself to come to such an end as God continually urges people to be saved. I love you, and I can provide everything you need. Love me and find the fulfillment your heart longs for. Stedman said, yet many men and women respond, no, God, I do not want to love you. I will take the life you give me and all the good things you provide, but I do not want you. I will run my own life, serve my own ends, and rule my own kingdom, end quote. And so what is God supposed to do? Is it God's fault that a person rejects his grace and his love and his mercy because they don't want to live for him, they don't want to serve him? So that he has no choice but to let them live eternally separated from him? Because that's what they want, right? They love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They don't want to fellowship with God. They don't want to love God or serve God. So God says, if you don't want any part of me now, why should I want any part of you then? But it's not God's fault. I found this as I was studying. It says, oh, you preachers make me sick, a fellow said to a witnessing Christian on the train one day. The Christian assured him he was not a preacher. I don't care what you are. You Christians are always talking about a man going to hell because Adam sinned. 
No, the Christian said, you need not go to hell because Adam sinned. You will go to hell because you refuse the remedy provided for Adam's sin. Don't keep complaining about something that has absolutely been taken care of. If you go to hell, you will go over the broken body of Jesus Christ who died to keep you out of hell, end quote. People want to blame God. It's not God's fault. If a, how could a God of love send anybody to hell? He doesn't. People choose to go there. And God respects their free will and breaks his heart, but he lets them go because he won't force anybody to spend eternity with him. That's why the Bible says, Today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart because you may not get another chance. Tomorrow is not promised to anybody. James said our life is but a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. All those people that are saying, well, you Christians make a lot of sense, and I really believe the Bible is true, but I'm not ready. I want to sow my wild oats, or I want to do this first. I want to achieve this goal. So someday, yet someday may never come. That's why you shouldn't put off till someday what you need to do today, which is receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. But verse 12, here is the patience of the saints here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. The word blessed in the Greek is, Oh, how happy. So it says, Oh, how happy are the dead. Now, of course, what is being said there is, oh, how happy are the dead in Christ. We know that because verse 12 says, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Oh, how happy are the believers who die at this point. John Wolvert in his commentary on Revelation said, the stern warning addressed to all worshipers of the beast is also an encouragement to those who put their trust in Christ in the time of great tribulation. Though some of them will face martyrdom and others will need to go into hiding, they are assured that their lot is far preferable to those who accept the easy way out and worship the beast, end quote. Don't you see that it's always the devil's way to try to offer people the easy way out? And a lot of people take it. They'll sell their soul to the devil for eternity if right now I can have prosperity. I can have everything I want, you know. As one pastor said to a young guy, he was talking about the fact that he didn't want to receive Christ because he was having too much fun. He didn't want God kind of um, messing with his style, cramping his style. He wanted to do his own thing. And the pastor said, well, then I have one suggestion for you. I suggest that you look at life like you would a half of an orange, cut an orange in half, and look at life like that half of an orange. And I encourage you to suck out of that orange every ounce of sweetness you can suck out of it. Because when it's over, it's over. So if you want to have your fun now, God says you're free to do that. But you better really make sure you have a lot of fun. Because you're going to have an awfully long time to think about the 40 or 50 or 60 years of fun you had that you traded eternity for. You know, Psalm 116, verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That may uh, throw people. That may kind of sound a little odd. But you know what? When God's children die, they come home. All their tears are done. 
All their hardships, their heartaches, their trials and persecutions are over with. They will dwell in God's presence forever. Didn't David say, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever? And the Bible says, in his presence is fullness of what? Joy. I mean, you know, when Stephen was martyred, remember? How he saw heavens open, the heavens open, and he saw Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of the Father? When he ascended into heaven, he sat down, right? But now we see Stephen, a Christian, who is about to be martyred, and Jesus Christ is standing. Why? To receive him. To receive. I got a picture in my office. I had a picture. When the roof blew off of my office last summer, I went back after they cleaned up. The only thing missing was that one picture. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you have it. It's a picture of heaven. You know, the clouds, and you see in kind of in a, just a very fainted way in the background, the, the spirit, you know, like a dove. And you see Jesus, and he's embracing somebody who has just died and has been, he's just giving them a giant hug. He's receiving them into everlasting habitations. So blessed in the Lord's sight is the death of his saints, because he gets to keep us and have us and fellowship with us forever. However, verse 13 isn't talking about the general reference of how all Christians, when they die, is uh, precious in God's sight. Primarily right here in verse 13, he's talking about these people who die at this point in the tribulation period because things are about to get much worse. God's judgment is about to be poured out in a way that up till this point, the people of this world have not even begun to experience. It's been bad up until this point. At this point, we are sometime just past the midpoint of the seven years. And God is giving people one last chance to repent, even though some of them have started worshiping the beast already. It's not too late. He's offering them the gospel. The angel is dispatched to, to speak the gospel to every person on the face of the earth in every tongue and language and dialect and so on. Everybody has been, giving, has been given one last chance to receive Jesus before God pours out the bold judgments, which are the final judgments on this earth. And they are going to be absolutely horrific. And so it'd be better to die uh, as a Christian, you know? Be better to, 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 to have your life taken from you to enter into eternal life than to continue worshiping the Antichrist for a little while longer on the earth and then go into a Christless eternity. And when it says here, um, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Of course, obviously, it's the Holy Spirit doing the talking there. The Holy Spirit is the one saying, hey, blessed are you believers who die in the Lord now. Because you know what? All your works are over and your, excuse me, your labors are over and your works are going to follow you. The Greek word for labors there is a word that means the difficulties, the hardships, the exhausting toil. And even it talks about the trouble that these folks have been experiencing for their faith. One author said, certainly the tribulation saints will experience the whole gamut of the world's, of the world's meanings of tribulation. They will be filled with deep sorrow as they watch those they love, children, parents, spouses, and friends suffer torment and death. 
Their lives will be a hard, difficult, dangerous struggle for survival. Not having the mark of the beast, they will be excluded from society, be unable to buy or sell and live lives on the run as hunted fugitives. Death granting rest from all the difficulties and sorrows of their lives will come as a welcome relief. In stark contrast are the damned who will know not a moment's rest throughout all eternity, end quote. So they will rest in their labors. All the trials and tribulations will be over with. And their deeds or their good works are going to follow them. Well, everything you do for the Lord is going to follow you into heaven. Jesus said, you can't give a cup of cold water to one of my disciples in my name, but what you won't receive a reward in heaven. Everything you do for the Lord, out of the right motive, I'm saying. If you're doing it out of the wrong motive, you're not going to receive any reward for it. You're doing it to be seen by men. Look how wonderful I am. Sound the trumpet. Here I'm giving to the church, you know, this money. I want everybody to get around me and see what I'm doing. Jesus said, enjoy that moment. You have your reward. But if you do for the Lord, not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing, just quietly serving, giving, helping, doing things for him in his name for others. When you die, every single thing you've done for the Lord is going to follow you into heaven. And you're going to be rewarded for those things. The Bible teaches that God will reward those who love him and serve him. Hebrews 6.10 for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. When Paul was facing execution, you know, he was finally, his life was done now. He was about to have uh, his head severed by the Roman government. He said, his final word, 2 Timothy, verse 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. As Paul is talking about our rewards, because we have loved the Lord's appearing. We're not living here on this earth because this is our home. This is everything. This is, you know, no, we're looking for eternity. We're looking for the Lord's coming. We're living for his glory, not our own. And so this life is not all there is. This life is simply a time of testing for eternity. This life is the time that we can choose to walk with God, to love the Lord, to, to live for him, or we can choose to live for ourselves and just, you know, gather to ourselves all kinds of treasures that we can store up on earth, but then when we die, we leave behind. Jesus said, you know, what would it profit a man if he somehow gained the entire world but lost his own soul? It's amazing to me what people are willing to give their eternities up for. They're not gaining the whole world. Far from it. They're just gaining a few pleasures on this earth and they're willing to give up eternity for it but Jesus said even if you were to gain the entire world is it worth losing your soul over of course not I think it's up to us to in a loving way when we talk about God to people that when we talk about his love we do then talk about the fact that he loves us who wants to save those who are lost 
But if they don't respond to his love, realize this, there is coming a day of judgment. And it's not going to be for, I said, like I said last week, 10 years or 100 years or 1,000 years. It's going to be forever and ever and ever. It's hard to get our minds around that, that the people who go to hell will never have a day's rest. They'll never have any relief from the suffering for all eternity. May God help us to really get our minds around that because that should motivate us to want to talk to our loved ones about the Lord, to really, you know, begin to pray for them. May God give us the grace to preach the truth in love, but to preach the whole truth. Now, verses 12 and 13 form kind of a brief interlude to encourage the tribulation saints who will be living on the earth at that time. And then beginning in verses 14 through 20, uh, the theme of God's wrath resumes. And literally, guys, it's going to be the beginning of the end for those left on the earth who have refused to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, who have refused to repent of their sins, and so on. And so this passage, verses 14 through 20, pictures the final harvest of God's wrath in two kind of agricultural motifs. The grain harvest in verses 14 through 16, and the grape harvest, verses 17 through 20. The question is, and many commentators wrestle with this, why did John record two visions of basically the same event using similar but different agricultural imagery? Well, the best way to understand it is because there's two things really going on here that he wants to kind of capture through this language, these illustrations. First of all, the grain harvest, the first one, verses 14 through 16, that deals with the seven bowl judgments that we're going to read about in chapter 16, verses 1 through 21. The grape harvest, which is after the grain harvest, uh, from verses 17 through 20, that really looks ahead to uh, the judgment at the Battle of Armageddon. That will cover in chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. So there are two main judgments yet future, and that is the final seven bowl judgments and then the future beyond that judgment of the Battle of Armageddon. And we'll see these as we move through it tonight. Uh, Revelation 14, verse 14, John said, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Don't let John's comment here, uh, on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. That's exactly what he saw in chapter 1, when we knew it was definitely Jesus Christ. This is also, no doubt, Jesus Christ. He is sitting on a white cloud. Evidently, the cloud is there to kind of help us to identify him. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 30. Jesus said, Then the sign of the... He's talking about his return out of the earth. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We often see clouds associated with the Lord, with the presence of God. It's called the Shekinah. And I believe that that's what's going on here, that this cloud is the Shekinah, a sign in heaven that this, in fact, is the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. It says he has on his head a golden crown. Now, the word here in the Greek for this word crown is not diadem, which is the crown of a king, 
It's Stephanos, which is the crown worn by a conqueror in war or a, a, a winner of an athletic competition. Usually we see Jesus crowned with a diadem, the crown of a king. But here it pictures him in his identity as the conqueror. Remember now, uh, part of it is that uh, the enemies of God have usurped control of the earth. And so Jesus comes. Now, the first time he came, he came as a lamb, right? To die. The second time he comes, he's going to come as a lion to conquer. And so that's the imagery here. Yes, he's coming to rule. And as we see him in chapter 19, he comes wearing many diadems. But right now, we want to get a, just a quick snapshot of the fact that he's coming as a conqueror. Either you submit your life to Jesus Christ now and receive him as Lord and Savior, you, where you bow the knee willingly to his authority in your life, or he's going to come back someday and he is going to judge you as he takes control of this earth, dispossessing the usurpers, the devil, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all those who have followed them. He is coming back as a conquering king to vanquish his enemies. He has a sharp sickle in his hand. A sickle, of course, was used for harvesting. It was a, a long handle. And on the end, there was a sharp, uh, rounded blade, very sharp, razor sharp blade. They would use the sickle with two hands and they would move it back and forth and they would use it to cut the uh, grain stalks off down at ground level. And then they would have to thresh it gather the grain and so on. But uh, it was used for harvesting. This is a picture of Jesus coming to mow down his enemies, basically, uh, using a sickle of judgment. Verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the, the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. It says another angel. This is the fourth now. We have saw, seen angels in verses 6, 8, and 9. This is the fourth angel that appears on the scene. The first three, the first three proclaimed that judgment was coming. This fourth angel now commands it to be executed. First three were warnings. This one now, this angel says it's time no more warnings. It's time to begin judgment. And so the angel comes out of the heavenly temple, which means this angel just came from the presence of God the Father. Some commentators, some people have trouble uh, with the concept that an angel is ordering the Lord Jesus Christ. The angel is not ordering Jesus. The angel is coming from the presence of the Father who is telling the Son through the angel, the time has come, the harvest is ripe, judgment is ready, Reap the earth. Bring judgment. You remember that Jesus told us in John chapter 5 that the Father had given him all authority to execute judgment. Remember John 5, 27? Because he is the Son of Man, he says. Same language in verse 14. John said, I saw one like the Son of Man. Jesus said, the Father has given the Son of Man, his Son, authority to execute judgment on the earth. And here we see it now being meted out, being carried out. The Father, through the angel, says to the Son, it's time Reap the earth. Bring judgment. God's anger has reached its limit by this time. The time of grace is over. And there will now be no longer any delay because the harvest of the earth is ripe for judgment. In fact, the verb translated is ripe means dried up, withered, 
overripe or rotten. And it just pictures the people of this earth who have basically passed the point of no return. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, there's different opinions. I believe it's not any one sin. Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he's not going to testify of himself. He's going to testify of me. And the Spirit's ministry is drawing people to Christ. And as he does that, he is pointing out things. He is drawing people's attention to Christ and to the works of God, trying to to show them that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, who is their Savior, if they'll open their hearts to him. If they keep denying the work of the Spirit, uh, over the course of time, their hearts get so hard, they pass the point of no return. In other words, there's no longer any hope. Their heart has gotten so hard because of their rejection of Christ. You know, you reject Christ once, you know, your heart isn't that hard still. You reject him again. Every time you reject somebody presenting the gospel to you, your heart gets a little harder. gets a little more callous. And so finally it gets so hard that you've passed the point of no return. These people have passed that point. They are likened to a harvest that is beyond any usefulness. It's rotten, it's withered, it's unusable. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him, day by day.